is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Very good afternoon to you, Warwick Long, indeed with you for the country. I don't know why I say that after the anonymous voice has just said that for you, but all the same. I'm here with you today. Great to have your company. Today on the program, Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano will join you on the program after a big win in the courtroom against dissatisfied members of the VFF who are trying to push for her position to be opened up and a spill vote for the leadership of the VFF. As it was discussed in court, though, the VFF argues there is no mechanism for removing a sitting president. Once they're voted in... They are in the job. Emma Germano will talk to you about why that's important on the program shortly. We'll also hear from the boss of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. They've got a lot of new laws to manage and to bring to the Australian people, including buybacks being on the table and delivering that extra water that the environment will own to the environmental assets uh, without flooding private property. And if it does, how do you manage those constraints? All of that will be discussed and a whole lot more, plus turkeys and the dwindling number of turkey farmers, not only in this state, but maybe in the country as well. We'll discuss all of that on the country. You, of course, can be involved in the program too. Send us a text, 0467 842 722. I've been loving seeing the photos come in from farms with Christmas decorations. We've had the British Whites giving us a season's greetings. They're a breed of cattle for those playing at home. We've had the working dogs on the hay bales with the Santa hats. If you've got something to share, I'd love to see it. 0467 842 722. Flick us a photo right now. Let's get some rural news with Jane McNaughton again today. Good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon, Was. The world's largest Indian sandalwood company has announced it will axe all of its managed investment scheme projects in northern Australia. The decision by Quintus affects around 4,000 hectares of plantation, mostly in the Kimberley's Ord Irrigation Scheme. It follows an independent assessment which found the schemes were not financially viable and would have cost investors more than $30 million to complete. David Menzel is a grower in the Ord. And he's also the local Shire president. He says some growers are still owed money by Quintus. Quintus have been both a landholder and a, a, a major leasee of, of land in the Ord Valley in particular. Certainly I know some of the suppliers have been paid, but maybe some of the landowners haven't. That's what I'm hearing. So again, the sooner the, the administrator gets in there and tidies things up, the better chance everyone's got of coming out with something and hopefully coming out with everything they're owed. Australia's consumer watchdog has recommended that the Wheat Port Code of Conduct be axed. The ACCC made its submission to the Federal Review this week. The Port Access Code, applied to bulk grain exporting ports, is due to expire on October 24 next year. It was set up after the deregulation of wheat exports, and the point of it was to ensure that the three big grain exporters, Grain Corp, CBH and Viterra, didn't exert undue influence over the market. The watchdog said the code could have actually prevented new port providers from entering the market and that there were limitations to enforcing it. Also, that providers weren't obligated to provide information that would allow the ACCC to meaningfully inform a position on its competitiveness in the market. Consultations remain open till the end of January. It's been three months since New South Wales gave up on eradicating the deadly Varroa mite and now 18 months since it was first discovered in the port of Newcastle. We've been in a transition to management phase since September as industry looks to move to management sometime in the new year. More than 46,000 hives have been euthanised and the mites have now spread further into the Sydney Basin. 
Shannon Mulholland is the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Deputy Incident Controller for Varroa Mite Response and says if the extensive eradication efforts weren't made, Varroa Mite would likely have infiltrated other states by now. What we've spent the last couple of months working through with industry is essentially completing our commitments to the eradication phase of the response. So we've been working with beekeepers just to finalise those conditions, uh, finalise any outstanding euthanasia of hives that beekeepers were requesting from us and also the disposal attached to that work. And uh, we're busily working through having all of the owner reimbursement claims finalised by the end of the year before we, we hit those end of year cutoff deadlines. The rest of the team has been working through is also um, a new iteration of the response plan. We've been workshopping quite extensively with uh, interstate jurisdictions and with all of the stakeholder industries, both pollination dependent and beekeeping industries across the country to talk through what we need to do in terms of transition to management. Australia's peak industry body for beekeepers says there's a lot of anxiety within the sector as beekeepers await first plans and training opportunities to help them deal with varroa mite. The Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO, Danny LaFleur, says that many beekeepers want more answers before deciding to reinvest and rebuild their hives and businesses. I don't think beekeepers do feel prepared. I think that's part of the problem. Um, the process in a biosecurity response and the deed that we've agreed to stipulates a transition to management period, which we're trying to negotiate the, the plan that outlines that transition to management. key component of that plan is centred around education and training. And it's that education and training that's really going to help beekeepers get a good understanding, get them prepared, get them comfortable um, and, and be able to devise a plan for their businesses moving forward. Yeah, there is a lot of anxiety out there and a lot of beekeepers that are not sure exactly how they're going to manage the pest. And whilst harvest might be wrapping up for many in Victoria, but in Tasmania, it's just getting started. Early deliveries of canola are just starting to trickle into XLD's grain receival site at Palrana near Launceston. XLD CEO John Tuscan says it's just getting started with most of the crop to come off in the new year. So last week we got our first loads in. So we've only had 14 loads in, pretty much that spread across, uh, I think, three or four growers. And it's generally those early paddocks that they put the toe in the water. I think most of those crops have been desiccated. They obviously plan to harvest before Christmas, but we're not expecting a huge amount prior to Christmas. We'll see the first of the week probably early in the new year, first worst first week in January. There's still obviously a lot of irrigated crop that's still being irrigated. This will be uh, those wheat crops that they've either finished irrigating early or they were dry land. And that's today's Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Jane. I love that with Harvest Stories moving around the country. You're always starting early in the top end of WA in Queensland and then working its way down. But I always forget about Tasmania. The fact that they they, they have a grains industry and uh, it is harvest time there. 14 loads of canola have just been delivered so far, just as many of you have been finishing. You're listening to The Country Hour. You can send us a text 0467 842 722. We spent a lot of yesterday's program in the courtroom with major court decisions on the Western Renewables Project and other large-scale power lines in Victoria and the, the powers that the uh, minister has in regards to those projects. There's also that major decision that came out of uh, the future of Victoria's Farm Lobby Group, which won a federal 
court case uh, brought by dissatisfied members to remove the organisation's leadership. The court hearing only lasted about 30 seconds yesterday, came after renegade Victorian Farmers Federation members started agitating back in June to remove the president and vice president, alleging poor financial management communication and a decline in membership. Two, twice their petitions were denied, so it ended in court. However, in court, the VFF argued that under its constitution, there's no mechanism to remove its president. And the judge decided in favour of the VFF. And President Emma Germano can join you on the program now. Emma Germano, welcome back to the country. Thanks, Was. Is this a big win for the VFF? Oh, look, I wouldn't call this whole situation a win. I wouldn't say that I'm pleased. Um, So much resource and energy going into essentially, you know, people making allegations or wild statements and um, the the VFF, the VFF board having to defend that it's gotten the governance on this one right. And I mean, I was on your program a few months ago saying, you know, predicting exactly what the outcome would be and saying we were giving these people the opportunity to have their vote of no confidence. And essentially that's what it's all um, amounted to. So it's, it's disappointing and it's disappointing for the farmers of Victoria who are hearing more from the VFF about court cases uh, than they are about the advocacy on issues that absolutely matter to them. Does it give you faith, though, that your agenda of reform of VFF rules and staffing are the right thing to do now? You have court backing? Oh, I think it helps us to move forward because what it clearly says there is irrespective of whether or not these people choose to come again with another 100 signatures and, and whatever else, if they want to continue to attempt to damage the organisation the way that they have been, um, that what the judge has really clearly spelled out is that it, it is a matter for the board in the event that a casual vacancy was um, created. And uh, we've, we have a board now who are absolutely about this um, reforming piece. And so much of that work has already happened in 2023. Um, and I can't wait for the conversation to shift around the improvement, um, the reinvigoration of the VFF and how we're setting it up for the next generation, rather than the conversation being led by the, the, still the small group who don't want to see any change in that organisation and want it to continue to run as it did 20 years ago, which is just not fit for purpose anymore. Can, can so I pick up on some of your language that. there? Uh, has the yeah. organisation been damaged by this event? Oh, absolutely. I, I think there's no denial of that. I mean, I think we've we've spoken about it being days of our lives and there's farmers who are just saying, can you just get on with the business of, of you know, advocating for farmers? Uh, there's no question that we've seen uh, members drop off over the last 12 months. You know, we had managed to hold it stable in the membership numbers for two years. For the first time in, you know, decades, we've managed to hold that number. And then we started to see that slip over the last 12 months. No question that there's been that damage done. And I saw commentary yesterday that said, oh, this was the result that we expected um, and wait to see more or there's more to come. And I think that if you were expecting to lose in court, then the only strategy could have been that you wanted to go out into the media, slam me, slam the organisation and see how, how much of an impact that that would have. Um, that could be the only strategy if, if you were expecting to lose. So I think that's outrageous. And how anyone can say that they care about the VFF um, when you're going out to deliberately destroy it, um, it is just actually beyond me and it should be, on, be beyond every farmer in Victoria and particularly those farmers who have been looking at this organisation for years and years saying, the Collins Street farmers, the wannabe agri-politicians, that's why I'm not a member. It's actually time for them to join right now and actually dislodge this sort of behaviour so we can have this organisation um, functional and working really well because we absolutely need it. I want to ask you what happens now, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but just picking up on that answer there, has this become personal for, for you and the disgruntled members? I, You know, this is actually the bit that I find um, 
I shouldn't say amusing because that's almost disrespectful language. The fact that they have attempted to make it personal about myself and Danielle um, actually like means that they simply don't understand that it is not our organisation, it's the Victorian Farmers' Organisation and we are merely custodians. Of course, it has felt um, personal, it has been ongoing, it has been relentless. It started actually in February right after we were re-elected, so there's no question to me about the... Um, you know, the fact that these people have taken their eye off the prize and, and gotten obsessed with trying to remove Emma as the leader. Um, and the reality is that we have to be thinking about the organisation and what it needs to move forward um, instead of being obsessed with who the particular president of the day is or who the board is, um, because anybody sitting around that board table operating in good faith for the organisation and for Victorian farmers know that there has to be reform because this has been an organisation that's been in decline and it's absolutely time for us to reinvigorate it and that's exactly what we've been doing. It's the reform that's been the, the wedge between sort of the groups at the moment and what you've been trying to bring is change to the Victorian Farmers Federation. What happens with that push for reform now? What is the timeline from here? We just keep on keeping on. Um, a really important piece of that is uh, the, the members having the opportunity to look at the constitution um, and that some of those constitutional changes are, are really an attempt to remove these political factions that, um, you know, attempt to control the organisation all of the time and split the pie into so many pieces and talk about their own power and resources. Um, that, that's something that, you know, there, there's a real um, point of that in the constitution that we're trying to reform, which is exactly why I'm saying to people, if you are a victim Victorian farmer and you have been taking it for granted that this organisation does this work for you and it does it does really important work for you but you've been sick and tired of hearing about the nonsense and the bullshit for the last two decades now is the time to join and actually vote in that piece of reform um, and the rest of it is just keeping on with the progress that we've already been making there's an agenda here and we're just moving forward and we keep moving forward despite the distractions so February 20th that's when that vote will happen yes that's yep that's the AGM uh, and and there uh, as a result of this case, as a result of the the dairy farmers leaving and the other sort of uh, board members resigning as well in the meantime, none of that is going to stop this agenda from pushing forward in your mind? I've got to say, if I'm being completely honest, all of those things that you just mentioned, Warwick, I think make a really good case for why um, reform is needed. And in fact, the progress on that reform has sped up since those that have no particular um, vision for the organisation and merely try to block um, the changes that are necessary have stepped out of the way, to be perfectly frank. Um, you know, we've now got a board. I couldn't be more pleased with how supportive the board is, the common agenda that we're working to, the robust and really meaningful conversations that we have now without conflict. We've got an amazing group of staff and the culture there has just totally shifted. We've got a new membership model that takes away all of the hurdles and the, um, you know, the hamstrings to actually signing up members. The infrastructure of the organisation is really in place now and we're in a really great um, position to be able to grow from there. Emma Germano, thanks for your time on The Country Hour. Thank you. Emma Germano there, the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation, joining you on the country era, 0467 842 722. If you want to send us a text, I can see some of those coming in and I'll get to those in a moment. Did want to bring in Andrew Wiedemann, who was leading the challenge first by petition, then through the courts, trying to spill the leadership of the Victorian Farmers Federation. As you've just heard the president say, it's very personal at the moment. Andrew Wiedemann, has it been personal for you? Oh, not really, Warwick. I mean, our focus has always been about uh, trying to reform what's actually there at the moment. And it's interesting uh, listening to Emma talk about reform when clearly, uh, you know, that's what we're trying to um, to actually in- impose here as well. So, 
So what does it mean for you and your group? Because you've lost yeah, this look, case. What was your reaction when the judge spent 30 seconds telling you you'd lost? Look, I think after the first day of the court proceedings um, and the way that the uh, VFS lawyers were presenting it, that uh, you know that it was a package operation, was always probably going to spell you know on a technicality that we would lose, which is as it's planned. I think it's really important, Warwick. Um, you know, Emma's made a couple of comments there that you know we're a small disaffected group. Well, I'm sorry, but there's nearly 10% um, of members have actually signed petitions through the last two processes, so 10% of the membership's not a small, disaffected group. A couple of other things, the judge in this judgment yesterday actually found valid uh, the resolutions one and two, which were to actually remove both uh, Emma and Danielle. In our process of putting forward to the membership uh, and the resolutions three and four, uh, was where the judge, um, you know, determined that we didn't have the numbers in terms of membership, etc., which only came to light after we'd actually submitted um, our process. But then there's also a dispute there around the membership numbers. And frankly, we are still looking through the judge's determination, Judge Beach's determination, as to whether or not we will appeal this. It's quite, quite likely that we would look at an appeal um, through this process as well. So that's interesting. This is not the end of it. As it stands oh, for you, yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of listening to to Emma's um, uh, comments there, but look, at the end of the day, you know, we're also talking about reforming the organisation, but winding up the federation as it stands today, and removing, um, you know, the commodities, which is why essentially people have joined the organisation and actually put money forward. Um, you know, it's actually that was what was decided some thirty years ago, and as a good friend of mine said. You know, essentially, this management group's turning the organisation back to 1975, when we've only got, um, you know, singular commodities raised. And we've all seen that with the dairy sector already. And I would suggest that, you know, if this constitutional reform was to get up, uh, then that would mean that we would see other groups form, because uh, clearly people have a passion for their own, um, their own workplace, for their own livelihoods, and that's what they want to see advocated for as the first instance. Where we come together is where the Federation powers are strong, and that's where we've been weak at the moment. We're seeing a weak front in the media, we're seeing a weak front in the government, and we're seeing a weak front at the local level where people have become disenfranchised because of the actions and the connectivity which we've lost and the trust that we've lost in the current management and leadership. You're not speaking like someone who's just spent a lot of money in court and lost, Andrew Wiedemann. No, look, you know, it's not just uh, our money as well. I mean, there's an enormous number of members that have been um, helping in the background and supporting what we're doing. So how much money did this case cost? Look, I would suggest that it's going to be well north of 300000 So, um, Including paying the VFF's costs because they were awarded against you? I would say, yes, And, and that'll come out of members' pockets, including our own. Um, but it's not about the money. It's actually about the formation and, and the process, Warwick. I mean, a number of us that have been involved in the VFS have actually rejoined um, a group. We meet once every, once a night every, uh, every week. Um, every every Monday night we meet. Um, that group's more than 30 people of past leaders, current leaders and future leaders talking about you know how we are going to try and reform the organisation um, you know, post this current management leadership team. Now, whether or not it comes down to it, the reality is that we were after an extraordinary general meeting to uh, give the membership the air to breathe 
to talk about whether there was any sort of mandate that this current leadership has in regards to any reform within the VFS. And clearly what we've seen is a revolt from a number of members in regards to that with people leaving the board. We've seen people leaving the organisation and forming a new organisation outside. There's also discussions about other commodities forming their own organisations and that's where the charter of the current board is to actually ensure that it is a unified uh, group of farmers right across Victoria, which Emma talks about. And, and that's what's being lost here. And so, Andrew Wiedemann, can I ask you a couple of quick questions, if, if I may? One yeah, is you, you haven't ruled out an appeal, so uh, we've discussed that. Uh, given a lot of the legal decisions around this uh, court case was around the wording of the petition that members signed, will you yep. try and form another, a third petition to spill the leadership of the VFF? Look, there is already other groups, not not my group, but there are other groups out there already uh, in the process of collecting signatures around uh, another resolution, uh, Warwick, and, and I'm sure that'll see light and early in the new year. So, yes, it's unfortunate for the organisation, but the board has also a mandate to call this to a stop. Will you uh, remain a VFF member in the meantime? Look, absolutely. Our renewal actually comes up in January, but we'll remain members of the organisation. But the, the other component here, Warwick, is that I'll become a member at a much less figure. So from a financial point of view, um, it's quite ridiculous that, you know, you take a five, $6,000 member a year and take me back to an $800 member a year member. The, the organisation, and this is being replicated right across the organisation in terms of the financial cost of the organisation, which will bear out in the numbers absolutely well. Why don't you just wait and stand against Emma Germano and Daniel Cucinotta at the next election? Um, look, others will, Warwick, um, you know, others will stand for sure. Uh, and the two incumbents at the moment actually retire because of the services and time that they've done. So we can wait to see that happen. But I think most people are quite concerned about the damage that's already occurring and which, as Emma is talking about as well. I mean, this could have been brought to a halt back in October last year, uh, and it wasn't. So this year, sorry. And so that's when we need to... Uh, ensure that members actually have their ability to talk about uh, this at an EGM. And, uh, but we're only talking about a year here, sorry. aren't we? Yeah, look, I think that their term uh, finishes in November uh, in 2024. So um, essentially, you know, people can wait till then, but I think most members um, have been talking to us about they'll only renew if there is seen to be some light around this. so $300,000 is a lot of money to spend, given that you're only 11 months away from the, from having a chance to vote. Yeah, look, it is, Warwick. And, um, you know, the money could have been spent better um, doing something else, that's for sure. Uh, I couldn't agree more um, in that regard. But the reality is that there is a lot of passion out here and, uh, you know, we really want to make sure that the organisation is stable and strong going forward. And at the moment, what we're seeing is, as I've said earlier, the potential is of uh, basically winding up the Federation, as everybody knows it. And uh, I don't think anybody in that group has any ideals that we're not about reform, but it's about reform at what cost, and that's the problem. Andrew Wiedemann, thanks for your time as well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Warwick, and thanks, listeners, and Merry Christmas to everyone. Andrew Wiedemann there, uh, who is uh, was leading the challenge uh, first by petition, then through the courts, to the VFF leadership. Uh, they lost their case to the VFF in court yesterday uh, and have a hefty bill, as you said. Uh, Andrew Wedham just talking around $300,000 is likely to be the wash-up 
of this case as well. Many of your texts coming in. I will get to those in just a moment. Let's just talk about something else in the meantime. Shall we? Let's talk turkeys. Demand for turkeys is outstripping supply in Australia this festive season. There are fewer turkey producers in the southeast of Australia than in previous years after an exodus from an already small industry. But producers say consumers are still keen to get their hands on the birds. Lucy Dodd took over the Pujanagoric uh, free-range turkeys at Bordertown in South Australia about a year ago and says her free-range turkeys are in hot demand. Uh, demand's been really strong this year. It's my first year as a turkey farmer, so uh, it's hard for me to compare to other years. And uh, definitely I haven't had as much supply uh, as uh, the previous owners had, um, but there was no way that I could meet uh, the full demand this year. Um, and general feedback I've been getting from butchers and other people is that it's, it's hard to find free-range turkey, especially. I don't know if it's high compared to other years. Perhaps the supply is less than what it's been in previous years. So how many turkeys have you been able to supply this year? Um, since buying, buying the property here at, at Bordertown, I've done 3,000 turkeys this year, um, which is only about a third of what uh, the previous owners used to do. And where are you supplying into, Lucy? Um, supplying right across Australia in some ways, into Adelaide, up to Darwin and across into Melbourne. There are less turkey farmers around, uh, and which just makes supply harder to come by. Do you know what's um, sort of driving the reduction in turkey farms across Australia? No. Um, it's, it's a niche market. I guess you've got to be able to find uh, your day-old birds and, and grow them out. And it's popular at Christmas time, but there is less demand throughout the year, so you've got to be able to manage that cash flow. But it's just not, a, you know, it's not something that's done broadly. Did you come from a farming background before you took over the turkey farm? Yeah, we've got a um, family farm here at Bordertown and I was already a pasture-raised chicken farmer so it made sense to, to broaden the, the poultry opportunities and as well as um, my farm has its own processing plant so that was a big advantage as well. Are there any differences in, in working with chickens versus turkeys? Uh, there's a few, yeah. I sort of uh, didn't know that might be the case when I started. Uh, turkeys are obviously bigger. Um, but they, they behave a bit differently to, to chickens. They're, they're very curious and um, a bit more of a flock animal than chickens are. That's one of the few turkey producers in southeast Australia, Lucy Dodd, uh, who also produces chickens at Bordertown in South Australia, saying demand for free-range turkeys is high this year. You're listening to The Country Hour, your texts on the way, as well as the weather report. Many texts coming in about the weather, particularly looking at Monday. I'll try and get some of that in on your behalf. You can always send those texts, 0467842722. William Howard, though, right now has our regional news headlines today. Good afternoon, William. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news, a man has died while allegedly attempting to steal copper from Opal Australian Papers Mill in Victoria's East. The man was detained by staff members before he fell unconscious and died at the scene. The exact cause of the death remains unclear and an accomplice remains on the run. A shed containing 1,700 hay bales has been destroyed by fire in Oyun in the state's northwest. The fire has been burning since about 11 o'clock last night. Five CFA trucks arrived to find the shed on Monroe Road fully alight. With seven, 287 lives lost on Victoria's roads this year, the RACV is urging all motorists to follow road rules this festive season. 
When travelling on any multi-lane motorway with a speed limit over 80 kilometres an hour, drivers must keep out of the right lane unless overtaking or turning right. Meanwhile, tailgating and stopping on a freeway are also prohibited in Victoria. The Coalition for the Protection of Greyhounds claims Gippsland is a hotspot for greyhound racing deaths after another dog died during a local race. The two-year-old greyhound was racing at Warrigal on Tuesday when it badly injured its leg and was euthanised by the on-track vet. For more news at any time, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, William. William Howard there with regional news headlines. Warwick along with you with the country. Our plenty of your texts coming in on uh, the state of the Victorian Farmers Federation and what's happening at the moment. JP says, pretty clear why Dairy Farmers Victoria formed, leaving the politics behind and getting on with the job for dairy farmers in Victoria. Merry Christmas, was it, says JP. I was. Uh, the old guard within the VFF need to stop with the old world silo mentality regarding farmer representation along with cross-commodity representation to the wider community. How many members do they currently represent with their views? What damage do they think is currently happening? The damage was done pre this dummy spit. The VFF was an inefficient and ineffective representation organisation, says ex-member. This one says a surplus of ego and testosterone is killing the VFF. Make like a tortoise and pull your head in. Uh, Tom from Bansdale says Collins Street's cockies aren't happy. Uh, and here is Georgie says, please ask who's paying for this stupid court case. Well, the, the, the group uh, that lost dissatisfied members uh, uh, will be paying a big bill. And as you heard, around $300,000 looks likely to be the bill at the moment. And this one says, why, why, why are people wasting good money and time with this VFF infighting and power game? Things need to change in the VFF. Why don't these people just wait until the normal AGM and then go through the process to remove the president if that's what members want? This commodity group's power games is childish and inane, to put it mildly. What worked and what was appropriate 50 years ago pre the internet and mobile phones and used snail mail to communicate along with commodity groups and structures that relate to what those members brought is in Stone Age thinking, says an ex-member as well. Uh, 0467 842 722. If you want to send us a text message here on the country, our Lincoln trainer is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology and take us through the weather forecast. Hey, Lincoln, I've got a text for you that you can weave yes. into your weather managed, uh, magic today from Jeff the Weather Tragic. Jeff oh, says, great. Hi, was I believe that a low pressure system is forming over the Wimmera on Monday, the second in a fortnight. Can you ask the bomb in terms of climate drivers, what's causing this? All the best for Christmas, says Jeff. So I'll let that sit in the back of your mind, Lincoln, and we might start with today first, should we? And uh, and go from there. What's it looking like around Victoria? Fantastic, yes. Well, I'm actually looking at the satellite picture and it's partly cloudy over most of the state, but in uh, East Gippsland and eastern parts of Western Gippsland, it's quite cloudy there and a bit of shower activity south of the ranges in the southeasterlies. Uh, it's a pretty pleasant day out there. Uh, temperatures in the low 20s in the south, kind of mid-20s in the north, not too hot in the north at the moment. Um, and what's causing these conditions? And I will get to that question, and it was a fantastic question. Um, we have a high-pressure ridge extending across the state, and that's bringing these settled conditions largely for most of the state today and Friday. And then we're expecting some isolated showers uh, on and south of the divide, continuing that southeasterly. Saturday, 
we are expecting an inland trough, and that's what gives birth, you could say. I don't generally say that, but I'm going to say it today, to a low on uh, Monday. But this, this inland trough begins to deepen over northern Victoria on Saturday, uh, bringing some instability, some potential showers and storms over northern parts of the state. This trough then deepens further Christmas Eve on Sunday with a more of a widespread shower and storm risk. Uh, and then finally Christmas Day, a surface low develops within this trough over the state. Now, the position... Um, of this low is still a little uncertain. It's jumping around, uh, but it could bring, and we think it will, bring uh, showers and rain across most of the state with uh, potential storms uh, likely. Uh, so that's that's probably the Christmas forecast there. In terms of Boxing Day, uh, this activity is expected, this kind of rainfall and storm activity is expected to move into the east. Um, and then some isolated showers expected for the first day of the Boxing Day test for those that like it. I know we don't talk about Melbourne, but I know some people might try Oh, we care about in. the cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay. All right. So I'm just being careful, treading carefully. <laughs> uh, and then uh, conditions further easing uh, for the second day of the test. So um, let's uh, let's dig in and we'll kind of talk about uh, the drivers as we get more detail. But uh, as as for Friday, yeah, it's Friday, Saturday, not too bad um, if you're kind of having your, your Christmas parties. Mostly sunny, uh, dry day throughout uh, on Friday across the state. Mild in the south, mid-20s, and warm in the north, low 30s. Uh, Saturday, sunny in the south, partly cloudy in the north. Temperatures remaining uh, mild in the south and warm in the north. Could see a shower and storm in the north, uh, so that's something to look out for with the influence of this trough. Then Sunday, Christmas Eve, this cloud is increasing with isolated showers across the state. Cool to mild in the south, warm in the north. So we're expecting uh, on Christmas Eve... Um yeah, the, it, it, unsettled conditions beginning. Uh, we're seeing that cloud come over the state. Not ideal if you're looking for good weather. Uh, and then Christmas, it's cloudy and wet across most parts due to that low. Uh, it's going to be cool in the south, mild to warm in the north. So I'm, I'm expecting low 20s across the south of the state, mid 20s in the north. Probably the warmest temperature will be about 27, 28 in Mildura. Um, and we're going to see some storm activity on that day uh, and potential rainfall. That'll be the biggest rainfall day we expect. Uh, we could see falls 10 to 20 mils in certain parts, even uh, getting up to 30 if the model holds true. Uh, and then on a Tuesday, it's mild across the state. So it's kind of mid-20s. Um, and uh, the showers hopefully moving to the east, giving opening it up, giving way to the cricket, as it should. Uh, and and uh, we'll see how that goes. But in terms of uh, Christmas and, and what's going on there, um, the drive, it's interesting. We're meant to be in a El Nino, and it doesn't feel like El Nino, that's for sure, because you expect drier conditions. Um, but there definitely are signals to that, and that means there's uh, cooler sea surface temperatures over northern Australia. We also have the Indian Ocean Dipole, and that is also um, uh, meant to drive less activity uh, at the moment. And then you've got this thing called the Southern Annular Mode. That's my uh, favourite. Yeah, that's to the south. That actually is working in opposition a little bit um, to those two drivers. So that might be a reason why we're getting a little bit more rainfall. And the Southern Annular Mode really defines sort of how high fronts come through, yeah? So is that pushing the weather onto Victoria? 
A little bit, but the actual driver of this, I mean, because climate drivers are more broad scale, um, but yeah, the subtropical ridge does seem like it's a little bit different, and that's what drives, you know, the allowance of these fronts to to swing through, as you said. But what's driving this uh, event on uh, Monday is, and we've seen it happen a few times now with these rainfall events, is a trough in in the bite in the upper levels, so really high up, like 30,000, 40,000 feet. It's a really deep trough. That is swinging across the state and it's timed it perfectly uh, on Christmas Day to be over the top of the state and that's going to intensify the surface low-pressure feature and spin it up even more. So it's this upper feature and this has happened for all the various events that have happened recently. An upper feature is combining with a lower feature and driving that. Maybe the southern annular mode is helping it a little bit, um, but that's the, the story at the moment. That's fascinating to sort of hear how it's going. Jeff, thanks for asking that question as well. A couple of quick, uh, more pointed questions if I can too. Uh, Pat yeah. in the southwest wants to know how much rain they're looking at for the southwest of Victoria. And at Ballarat, along those lines, someone's saying, can you please ask when it's going to start raining around Ballarat? Can you combine those two for me? Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking Christmas? Uh, or just in general? Well, Ballarat, I'm not sure about that. That's just asking when it's going to start raining Ballarat. I think Christmas for the southwest. How much okay. rain are they looking at there? Okay. Well, at the moment, uh, if we believe the models, um, it's saying uh, the highest possible 30. So if we're saying the absolute more mean rainfall, it could be 5, uh, 5 to 15 with outside chance up to 25 mil at the moment. So you're going to get some showers. It's going to be wet on the day. It's just how much. If the low forms more closer to South Australia, we could see a bit more rainfall activity. So depending on its position, it'll either be around 5 to 10 or it could be a bit more. Great. Uh, and Ballarat, when are they getting rain? Well, geez, uh, that's a great... <laughs> Well, uh, is it really Monday? Two days. Yeah, it's really. I mean, we're starting to see activity. If we look back at the forecast, it's really Sunday, uh, Christmas Eve. We're starting to see that cloud increase and showers across the state. So I'll be saying Sunday, uh, Christmas Eve, is when we're going to start to see some activity over Ballarat. Lincoln, you've earned your money today. Thank you very much for that long and in-depth weather report. We we really do appreciate it on this program. Absolutely. Well, and can I give you some Christmas fun facts? Yeah, go for before it. Before I go. So um, we actually had our climate uh, person, Jonathan, who's amazing in the background. He's he's uh, done some climate statistics, and we know that this Christmas forecast um, is going to be five degrees on average uh, cooler compared to the last 10 Christmases. So if you're getting a sense of it, it is a cooler day compared to the last 10 Christmases. And looking back over the longer period, around 3% of past Christmas days in in the south of the state had more than 10 millimetres of rain. So we're, it looks like we're going to be quite cool and have more rainfall than normal. The highest rainfall recorded in the south of the state uh, on Christmas Day was 48 millimetres in 1988. We could challenge that, but it's still um, it's probably going to be a little bit less and that and back in 2006 um, the south only reached about 14 degrees on Christmas day and we're going to see a little bit warmer than that uh, on the day but it's just interesting to see that it's going to be cooler than average it's going to be wetter than average 
and it's definitely not an El, it doesn't feel like El Nino, does it? No, it certainly does it. Um, love those stats, though, Lincoln. Thank you very much. You're the welcome. only regret is there's no country hour on Christmas Day or Boxing Day to take the rainfall figures. But, you know, uh, the day we'll after, them. if everyone's ready, <laughs> we'll be ready for it. Thanks, Lincoln. Awesome. Take care. Lincoln Trader there, senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the uh, full forecast. More than the full forecast there, but we're here for it. You know, we love a good weather report on the country. Our Wally, though, well, not much trust in the Weather Bureau, saying, I think the Weather Bureau models need a holiday, says Wally as well. There has been frustration around, particularly around some of the forecasting, uh, not only here, but in Northern Australia for recent weather events. And uh, some of those climate drivers hearing how things are connecting up and so forth might sort of go to show how the models sometimes can miss the mark on different events depending on how the weather is developing but we always try and bring these questions to you and always try and ask your questions to the bureau on your behalf if you send a text into the country hour let's keep moving though and we'll talk water but not the one falling from the sky we'll talk from the stuff in the rivers right now earlier this month widespread changes on the way water in the murray darling basin is shared were legislated the new laws give states more time and options for water saving infrastructure projects and commit that 450 gigalitres of extra water must be recovered for the environment by december 2027 kath sullivan asked the murray darling basin authorities andrew mcconville what the changes mean for the organization tasked with seeing the plan's implementation. For us, Kath, it's about probably walking and chewing gum at the same time in many ways. You know, we have our ongoing task of, of running the River Murray and, and seeing through the implementation of the Basin Plan. Uh, what the changes do that have come through the bill, obviously it pushes back the date of, of Sidlam reconciliation to the end of 26. So you know, we'll need to, to take that into account. We'll work with the states with the projects they have and if they bring forward new projects. And then also for the Commonwealth in terms of its task of recovery of the, the 450 gigalitres of environmental efficiency water, um, looking at, at tracking the progress of that. So it pushes our, our reconciliation and monitoring task out. That does butt up against the Basin Plan review, but I think you know we're, we're confident we can both continue our work and, and, and work with the states to, to help them understand you know, what they might look like at that end of 26 date. So that's probably the first point, Kath. And then the second is we have a specific task, which is the development of a constraints roadmap over the course of 2024. The fact that you're calling it the River Murray and not the Murray River, does that indicate you've been spending all of your time in South Australia? <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't at all, Kath. It's a great question. But, uh, you know, that's that's how we... We do use the terminology when we look in the context of the agreement, but you know, what we're seeing this year, thankfully, I think across the entire River Murray or Murray River system is perhaps a, a more normal year. You know, this time last year, we were absolutely right in the middle of some of the most significant floods that we'd seen in, in, in several decades. Uh, you know, what we have now is a system that's still quite full. Storages are pretty full above sort of 88, 89% across the basin, but a much more normal outlook in terms of how we would expect to be operating the river uh, at this time of the year. Okay, to go to the constraints now, I think there were maybe something like 4,000 landholder agreements required as part of this project. How many of those have actually been reached and how many have you got to go? Yeah, look... I, I can't answer that question, Kath. I, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a task for for the states. What what we've been asked to do is look at the overall roadmap to to relaxation of constraints, and that yes, it includes uh, you know how 
uh, landhold agreements might be might be negotiated for for access to allow um, you know water to move out onto the floodplain. It, it also means looking at where there might be infrastructure constraints, um, where there but might be rule changes that are needed. surely the Murray-Darling Basin Authority can't do anything with constraints until these uh, agreements have been reached. Hasn't that been the whole um, handbrake all this time? I wouldn't describe it as a handbrake, Kath. I, I think certainly it is very challenging, but I think that what we need to do is is work collectively with the states. I think perhaps what we've seen is, is a a little bit of a disjointed approach. And, and you know, when we think about constraints, yes, people do focus on uh, the landholder uh, agreements, but there are also many other things that can be done in order to ease constraints, which then bring greater benefit to the water that's recovered for the environment. So, yes, uh, access is one part of it, but I think, you know, what we need to do as the MDVA is work with the states to say, okay, how can we... Um, how can we be perhaps more consistent in the way we're approaching across borders? How can we identify all of the opportunities so it's not just about access agreements um, to, to work out, you know, where there's opportunities to, to relax constraints? What's going on with the Barmer choke and attempts to reduce the sand slug? Yeah, so look, you know, what, what we saw, Kath, with the with the choke this year is is with the, the high level of, of, of flow and flooding that, uh, you know, there was more more sand uh, deposited uh, in the reach uh, this year, probably the equivalent of what would normally happen over the period of, of four or five years. Um, the MDBA has has secured some additional funding from the Ministerial Council to really start to zero in on. There's about five or six options uh, that that need to be considered as to how we how we deal with the the constraints of the choke. And I think the point here is that there's no one silver bullet. It will be a combination of things. So it could be about the removing of, of some sand. It could be about using uh, pathways around. It could be about using infrastructure um, and importantly, making sure that we constructively engage with First Nations communities on both sides. So it's, I wish it was simple, Kath. Unfortunately, it's not. But, you know, we do have uh, a pathway and a series of options that we think can can help. So fair to say you're still thinking about it. Uh, I'd say we've gone well beyond thinking about it. I think we've got a fairly clear uh, understanding of, of the five or six most likely options that are going to help address the the capacity constraint that is there. Uh, and now it's about how do we turn those options into implementation. That is Andrew McConville, who is the CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. He's speaking there to Kath Sullivan about implementing the new version of the Basin Plan, which passed Parliament late this year and certainly be a big talking point as a lot of those water purchases kick up and kick off in 2024. I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot more about it then. Uh, 0467842722 is the Country Hour text line. Jared sent an incredible video. Jared from Yarrawonga says, this is the start of the storm that rolled through to Rulery last night. Two minutes after I got back in my truck, heavy rain all the way to the Berrigan turnoff, and you can see some huge clouds, a bit of action in the sky there. Thanks for sending that through, Jared. Much appreciated as well. Keep the text coming. Love hearing from you here on the Country Hour text line. 
In the meantime, let's talk about some of the roads. Jared might be driving on if he's doing uh, work in regional Victoria in a track peak. Body Grain Growers is welcome to report recommending greater cooperation between the three levels of government on roads maintenance, but says more money is needed to maintain roads to an acceptable standard. The House of Representatives Standing Committee on Regional Development, Infrastructure and Transport has tabled its report on the road network, making 26 recommendations on improving the way roads are managed and maintained. Sean Cole is the Acting General Manager of Policy and Advocacy at Grain Growers and he says the report states the obvious. Look, in terms of the Standing Committee, yes, they've pointed out things that are blatantly obvious. I think we all know uh, the state of the roads um, you know, are very poor and, and, and that you know we're living with the consequences of repeated and uh, long-term underfunding uh, for, for rural and regional roads. So um, some, some of the recommendations included uh, that there needs to be greater collaboration across all levels of government because obviously um, we deal with the federal, state and local government does the heavy lifting there in terms of rural roads with um, 85% of the national road network actually being uh, looked after by by uh, local councils. So, um, you know, we need to have, uh, and, and the committee recommended that we need to have, you know, um, better guidelines, planning investment frameworks, and also address existing road asset um, data gaps because obviously we need information to know, to pinpoint where, where funding should be heading. And the standing committee does point to the recent doubling of the roads to recovery uh, annual budget allocation now up to a billion dollars a year. But, I mean, when you break that down, that's across more than 500 councils, so only a couple of mil per yep. council per year. That's that's really pocket change when it comes to the cost of, of, of roads, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, firstly, Angus, I'll say that we do welcome the, the doubling from 500 million to a billion, but to your point as well, in the next federal budget, um, we've met with Minister King as well, you know, and uh, made it clear along with other groups that we are looking for, for more funds. We've got other uh, problems as well, like there in Victoria, you've got, you know, a classic uh, example of instead, in, instead of investing or fixing the roads, you know, we're, we're putting blanket um, speed restrictions on, you know, some parts of the road are down to 40 or 50 kilometres an hour, over long stretches, so that means that you know the growers wearing more cost. You've got um, you know also safety issues involved with you know driving on poor roads um, and and you know roads being washed out or people taking detours, um, and and eventually that that cost does actually come down on the supermarket shelf as well through increased transport costs. So there's a lot of good reasons why we should be um, investing, and I think the time is now. So yeah, grain growers is calling on. Um, increased funding, uh, you know, uh, for the long term in our in our road uh, network in the bush to build build resilience. And uh, a politics ruling over practicalities when it comes to roads funding, because one example in Victoria, we've just heard this week, the North East Link, clearly a Melbourne roads project. The budget has now blown out by ten billion dollars to more than twenty six billion dollars. I mean, you compare that to the regional roads Victoria fund and. It's just nothing in comparison. And so is that just mm. a case of the roads money going where the, the voter base is and regional roads and regional people missing out? Yeah, look, on, on that, Angus, look, I'm probably not qualified to speak exactly to that pro project, but I think we do know that the federal government is looking to change the way potentially it invests or looks at road investment to look more so at corridors. So, And look, the main message to government we have is no matter what the program is called or what the new funding bucket looks like, we just need to increase that bucket and it needs to get to where it needs to go. 
Um, so I guess the take-home message is, you know, at, at, a, at a state level, it is difficult, but we, we need to make sure, and, and as per the recommendation of the committee, you know, it needs a national uh, approach that then trickles down to, down through the states and local governments to make sure we're getting sen- sensible outcomes. And you said as well that the Standing Committee recommending better collaboration between the three levels of government. But the other thing as well that we see or that people comment on is when crossing state borders, going from one state to another, roads can go from reasonable to to terrible or or vice versa. Mm. So does it need to be more consistency between the states as well? Yeah, look, I think that's a great point, Angus. And yeah, that that is something the report alludes to. I suppose we we need to be seeing national consistency, and you know, getting to the Savic border or any other border. You know, we do see the changes um, once once we hit the the sign that says "Welcome to whatever state you're entering." So, yeah, the nationally consistent approach, and potentially the move to looking at corridors rather than divvying up into um, state buckets as well, maybe maybe helpful. It costs generally five to ten times as much to rehab, you know, rebuild or rehabilitate a road than it is to maintain it. So the investment in road uh, maintenance uh, and increasing that pipeline actually makes economic sense and that, that's an, an argument that uh, we've also made made to government. So, we, we yeah, we're looking forward to the next budget and hopefully we, we've got uh, a late Christmas present out of the tree with a bit more funding. And the arguments that you're making and other arguments, that line, for example, that, uh, you know, farmers required to have roadworthy trucks, well, shouldn't they uh, expect truckworthy roads? I mean, those sorts of things. Are, mm. they, are they cutting through? Are those messages getting through to the the, the powers that be? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a good point, Angus. I mean, you, you know, to what you're saying is it is the fact that, you know, poor roads take their toll on trucks as well. I mean, um, you know, I was once involved in the trucking business through um, my own family trucking business and, um, you know, a rough road just beats everything up from airbags to axles to, you know, tyres, the driver. Fat- fatigue's a massive issue as well, driving, you know, um, you know, be triple uh, for hours on end on a really rough road. So there's just a multitude of factors. So we think that, yeah, beyond the payback and investment, um, you know, we've also got other... Uh, qualitative factors, not just quantitative factors that, you know, are good reasons to, to fix roads. You know, there's just so many good reasons to, to increase funding and I think the time is really now. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not only us calling for this, many other groups. We've got everything we need to, to make the point. So, it's either now or never in our, our mind and we've got the budget coming up as a perfect opportunity for government to uh, um, get the checkbook out and, and make that commitment to long-term uh, resilience in our road network. That is Sean Cole, Acting General Manager of Policy and Advocacy with Grain Growers, speaking there with Angus Verley. You're listening to The Country. It's about all the time we have for you today on the program. Some great texts that have been coming in. Stephen and Leanne from Curla, uh, Warwick and team, wishing you a great Christmas and a wonderful New Year. Same to you, Leanne and Stephen. We'll be here tomorrow, though. And I hope you can be involved in the program as well then. And Alan actually just commenting on the weather report before when we heard from the uh, the Bureau, and it sounds like it could be a very wet Christmas this year, saying it sounds like we need to leave the towel out for Santa as long, <laughs> along with the milk and cookies. Could be a good idea, Alan. Thank you very much. Or maybe a poncho if you can get one in Santa's size. Uh, Jared, uh, not Jared, uh, this is an unnamed one. I've been asking all this week if you've got a bit of great Christmas cheer on the farm. Send it through. We'd love to see a photo of it. Some great uh, fake cows, uh, corrugated iron cows at the Gippsland uh, Regional Livestock Exchange in Sale have uh, come through on the text line. The tin 
Frisian type cows with the uh, with the tinsel around the neck and a handbag on one as well. Dave and Len, by the look of it, brilliant. Thank you for sending that through. Absolutely beautiful. Keep them coming. Tell us uh, what you're up to on the farm this Christmas. We we'll can't wait to to talk to you all about it again tomorrow. When we'll have another country hour. Talk to you then. It's one o'clock now. Mm-hmm.